If you have a Bible uh, with you, can you please turn to Matthew 25? It's page 994 on the Pew Bibles, just if you don't have one with you during the summer. Uh, we have been looking as a church at a selection of the parables on Sunday evenings. And as we come to our seventh tale of the unexpected, let me ask you a question just as you're looking up Matthew 25. How often do you think about or how often do you discuss the revisit of Jesus to earth, the second coming. If you were at church this morning, we sang these words during our opening hymn. When Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and take me home, what joy shall fill my heart. But what thoughts come to mind whenever you see words like that or sing words like that or words similar to them? One of the the key reasons why I really enjoy the parables is because they force you in a positive way. They force you to consider and reflect on on vitally important issues. Issues that sometimes you tend to shy away from. Our attitude to the poor, for example. Our Lazarus at the door, as Roy helped us to think about three weeks ago. But this evening in our next mini-drama in picture language, which is one definition of the parables, we're encouraged to confront another reasonably sensitive issue. The prospect of the end of our world. And that one day, someday, any day, Jesus is going to rip the skies apart and explode back onto this scene of time in a particular way. And associated with that earth-shattering event is the prospect then of of judgment, followed by separation and segregation of us all into two distinct groups facing two alternative destinations. Now, whenever you mention those events, whenever you talk about the end of the world or end times, I think a lot of people have a slight tendency, maybe more than a slight tendency, to become a little cynical. Or else they just think, you know, it it all sounds rather bizarre. And maybe one of the reasons for the cynicism and the doubt is that since Jesus spoke about these subjects in quite some detail, 2,000 plus years have passed. Today is the 23rd of August 2009, and we're still here. It still isn't over. And therefore, maybe it's not that surprising that thoughts about Jesus ripping the skies apart at any minute, well, they just don't tend to occupy our thoughts on a regular basis, any kind of a regular basis. And in addition, I think that whenever people do think about the end of the world, they think in terms of global warming, or maybe rogue nations, or fanatical world leaders that maybe would have the ability to blow us up with a nuclear bomb. But this idea of a returning King Jesus who will end it all. Is that not increasingly unlikely? Maybe even increasingly laughable to a large chunk of humanity in the third millennium. And even those of us who are Christians can become a little, dare I say this, a little indifferent or a little blase about the prospect. And therefore, I hope this parable this evening, which is not a particularly easy parable, 
but I hope that it will force us or encourage us to think about our attitude to the end of the world. And even more importantly, the preparations that we make in light of its inevitability, despite the apparent delay. So let's read this parable together. Matthew 25. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like... Let me just stop there. At that time contains a definite reference to end times. If you you actually look across at chapter 24, verses 36 to 51, we're not going to take time to read them, but Jesus has been talking about that moment in time when he, as the Son of Man, as he describes himself, returns to end it all. So at that time, it contains explicit reference to end times. At the time, the King of Heaven will be like ten virgins. Now, some translations have ten bridesmaids, so if you're more comfortable with that word on a Sunday evening in church, then we'll stick with it. Although there is no clear evidence that they were actually bridesmaids. But anyway, let's move on. Incidentally, why ten? Why ten? Well, why not ten? Could have been eight. Remember, when it comes to parables, don't get too bogged down in the detail. The kingdom of heaven will be like ten bridesmaids who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. So the setting for this parable is a Jewish wedding, which would not only have been a joyful occasion, but it would also have been a long drawn out, a very protracted affair. And normally the bridegroom, along with some of his close friends, would walk. You know, there were no stretch limos, no vintage cars, but the bridegroom would walk to the bride's house. And it would have been quite a relaxed occasion, and so there would have been no set time for the bridegroom to arrive. Now that is not particularly convenient, it's not particularly helpful, slightly frustrating, but that's exactly the point. And after he arrived, the bridegroom, there would have been various ceremonies followed by a street procession, apparently after nightfall, back to his home for the wedding feast. And unlike our one afternoon, one evening receptions, the festivities at a Jewish wedding certainly at that time could have lasted for a week and maybe even a fortnight. So the context was a wedding where ten bridesmaids armed with lamps were waiting to meet the bridegroom. Now the lamps would either have been small, oil-fed lamps or more likely what most people think is that they were torches with rags that needed to be periodically doused with oil in order to keep them burning. Now it's probably at this point in time that a number of you have got a song in your heads. Give me oil in my lamp. And we're not going to sing that. Not a chance. And anybody who's never heard the song, just be grateful. But, (laughs) sorry if I've offended anybody. Back to our story. We'll pick it up again. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. Now, this is not the first time that Jesus has drawn a comparison between the wise and the foolish. Earlier, back in chapter 7, Matthew records the Jesus story about the wise and the foolish builders who built on sand and rock, rock and sand respectively. But why were five foolish and five wise in this story? Verse 3. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. And that is the critical aspect of this story. And we know this. The wise ones were prepared for the bridegroom's delayed arrival. Whereas 
the foolish ones weren't. And in verse 5, we discover that preparation was indeed going to be essential. Look at verse 5. The bridegroom was a long time in coming. And they all became drowsy and they fell asleep, which is okay. All ten slept. And that's not a problem. We'll come back to that in a moment. But then the inevitable happens. Let's pick it up at verse 6. At midnight, the cry rang out. Here's the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish one said to the wise, Give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they replied. There may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were already, already had gone in with him to the wedding banquet. And the door was shut. And later the others also came. Sir, sir, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, I tell you the truth. I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. Now, whenever you take a step back, it's fairly clear who the key characters and the main event are meant to depict. Most people are agreed on this, that Jesus is the bridegroom. I mean, that's an image of Jesus, a picture of Jesus that comes through time and time again, right throughout the New Testament. The virgins are the bridesmaids. Do they represent Christians? And and in a sense, this is where, for some people, this parable gets a little unsettling. And what about the wedding feast, the banquet? Surely that is a picture of heaven. Now this parable is not about whether Jesus will show up or not. I mean, that's just a given. But what this is about is the need to be prepared whenever he does arrive. And the parable makes it really clear, and everybody again has agreed on this, that delay is to be expected. Waiting for the return of Jesus is inevitable, even though we may struggle with that. And okay, here we are 2,000 plus years later, and Jesus still hasn't showed up. But remember something we said just last week, that we are dealing with a God for whom a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. And in other words, as far as God is concerned, in one sense, a week hasn't even passed since Jesus went back to be with him. But he is going to leave home one day. And he is going to return. And he is going to come back to earth. And when he does, it's clear as you read the script that it is going to happen. Suddenly, look at verse 6. At midnight, the cry rang out, here he comes. And in the story, there is this idea that yes, his return, his coming is expected, and yet it's unexpected. And isn't that the tension that we live with? That we, we expect the return of Jesus, but we don't really expect it yet. I mean, we don't expect it before the London Olympics in 2012, do we really? We don't expect it before I get that job, before I get married, before I retire, before I travel. We expect it, but we don't expect it. But the one thing that this parable makes clear is that his arrival is imminent. But what do we understand by that? And what will he discover whenever he finally does 
appear. And this is where I want to suggest that the parable gets almost too close for comfort for those of us who claim to belong to him. Because here is where this becomes a kind of a tale of the unexpected. Here's where the sting resides. Because one of the striking aspects of this story is how in so many ways the ten bridesmaids were very familiar, similar. All had lamps. All were dressed alike. All expected the bridegroom to come. All fell asleep. All wanted to be part of the wedding banquet. And yet at the end of the day, there was one critical difference. Five were prepared. Five weren't. And via this, what I think is actually quite a provocative parable, comes a massive challenge. A disturbing possibility that it is possible to look right. It is possible to talk the talk. It is possible to want to meet the bridegroom. It is possible to want to go to heaven and spend eternity there. And even to think, listen, I'm okay. I'll be alright. And yet to discover that you're not And that's where, in a sense, the twist comes, because in verse 12, we discover those very harsh, at least I find them harsh, and yet biblical words and truth. I tell you the truth, I don't know you. And again, if you go back to Matthew 7, to the story of the foolish builder and the wise builder, just before Jesus tells that story, and it's into the context of this story that he says, what I'm about to say. He says in verse 21 of Matthew 7, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And I must have phrases like that, I've always found difficult to read. And difficult to fully understand. But whenever Jesus comes to tell this parable in Matthew 25, this is not a new concept, this is not a new discovery. This idea that Jesus is going to say, I tell you the truth, I don't know you. This idea that some will expect to be there, but will discover other ways, is a danger that Jesus seemed to highlight And again, as chapter 25 of Matthew goes on, we know that Jesus tells another story that that unsettled people, the story of the sheep and the goats. And we're not going to go there this evening. But again, this idea of what it is that actually determines who knows Jesus and who doesn't. And so for those listening to this parable for the first time, that idea would have left them feeling slightly uncomfortable. And in the same way, I think it should cause those who profess to know Jesus to ask some heart-searching questions. Questions along the lines of, yes, I can know about Jesus. I can know about the Bible. But do I know the God of the Bible? Do I know Jesus personally? Am I in relationship with God because of Jesus? You can be religious and yet you can lack relationship and intimacy. And one of the interesting parts of this story is how that the, foolish, the five foolish bridesmaids, they turn to the others in search of additional oil. And Michael Green, commenting on this aspect of the story, makes this point. The surprise is to discover that there are some things you cannot borrow. You need to possess them for yourself. And that is the case with the Christian faith. 
You can't live off. You can't borrow other people's faith. If you're not what you profess to be, nobody else can stand in for you. You need to make your own preparations. You need not to rely on someone else. But as I read a parable like this, and as I confront some of the issues, I I ask myself the obvious question, well, how do we prepare? I mean, if this is a parable about being ready, about preparing, how do we actually go about doing that? Well, let's go back to the fact that they all slept. You know, one of the problems for some early Christians was that because they thought Jesus was coming back at any moment, they virtually packed in everything. And they simply waited. And later on, Paul had to deal with this issue. But in the parable, Jesus was making it clear that, listen, the routine of life, it rolls on despite the delay. And if you flick back to to chapter 24, verses 37, 38, Jesus says, As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. In other words, life must go on until the end actually comes. But here's the critical point. Don't get so caught up in the routine of life that you forget that things are not always going to continue the way they are I think if I'm honest sometimes I just do think things are just going to continue the way they are and maybe that is the problem for the vast majority of people today that we get caught up in the busyness and the pressures and the demands and the distractions of this life that we just simply forget that Jesus is going to return and Jesus is going to judge And Jesus is going to separate. Ten slept. But only five slept knowing they had prepared. And as you live your life and as you work and as you play and as you sleep. Make sure you are doing those things. Knowing that you are prepared if the end was to come. Now. For tomorrow. But how do you prepare? Back to the question. How do you actually prepare for this? What what does it mean? And as I finish this, what, what I wanted to do was in some way tie in what we've been doing during this series. And reflect back a little on some of the stories that Jesus told. Some of the parables of Jesus. With a view to thinking, well in those stories... As far as Jesus was concerned, as he tells them, how is he encouraging us to prepare? How do you intentionally ensure that you are prepared before it is too late? Because this parable makes it abundantly clear, as does so much of scripture, that too late is a possibility. That not everyone is getting through the door to the greatest party ever attended. Deciding to put this off or choosing to suspend any decision to get prepared is literally a gamble of cosmic proportions. A gamble that these five foolish bridesmaids took and lost. Back to our parable on the 5th of July. Maybe for some of us, and I think for so many people in our world today, being prepared means that we've got to recognise The unconditional love of God. His infinite compassion for us. 
His everlasting forgiveness. That's what it means to prepare to meet Him again. To know that this is the God who wants to be in relationship with us. Or based on that same parable, if you were here that evening, there may have been some of us who recognized ourselves in the elder brother. On the exterior, everything appeared to be right. But it was all born out of a sense of duty. There was no love. He had lost the joy of relationship. And maybe being prepared means rediscovering what does it mean to enjoy God. To enjoy a relationship with God where we don't serve him out of a sense of duty. But we serve him because he loves us. He's compassion for us. And he has forgiven us. Well, what about a couple of weeks ago? The parable of the rich fool reminds us that being prepared means we've got to take a long, hard look at our attitude to money and possessions. Jesus made it clear in that story that our lives, they don't consist in the abundance of what we have. And the only thing that we take with us when we die, said Jesus in that story, was the condition of our souls. And therefore, maybe for some of us and for many in our society today, preparing for Jesus means recognizing, listen, what are my priorities in life? Do I really know what it means to lay up treasure in heaven rather than amass so much here for the now? Or last Sunday... The persistent widow. Where we discovered that Jesus doesn't want us to lose heart. Jesus doesn't want us to give up. Jesus wants us to keep praying. And maybe for some of us, being prepared for Jesus coming again means reviving our prayer lives. Where we again open those channels of communication between us and God because for whatever reason they've shut down. Or what about the night Colin Creighton was here? In the parable of the unmerciful servant. And maybe for some of us, to be prepared means that we need to forgive someone for the 77th time. But that's what it means to prepare. Or what about that night when Roy spoke about the parable of the rich man and Lazarus? That actually preparing for the return of Jesus means that we have got to know what does it actually look like to care for the Lazarus at our door? What is our attitude to the poor. And when Jesus returns, will he find a people whose hearts break for those who are less fortunate than we are? The Lazaruses at our door. And there are literally millions of them. And as I reflect back on the stories of Jesus, for me, those are some of the ways, they're not all of the ways, but those are some of the ways in which Jesus encourages us to prepare for his imminent return. And verse 13 of our parable this evening as we close. Therefore, says Jesus, keep watch or be prepared for you do not know the day or the hour. And so therefore, despite the prevailing cynicism, despite the fact that so many people think, listen, it's been so long. It's 2,000 plus years ago that Jesus talked about this. It's never going to happen, is it? Let's be real. Despite all of that, let's not lose sight of a core truth of our faith that we believe Jesus is going to return. But when he does, will he find us prepared? 
Because if he doesn't, the implications are truly catastrophic.